0: I want to welcome everybody to the uh, CFR Coop Annual um, Lectureship. Uh, This is the first lectureship that we've had since the Institute has been, the CFR Coop Institute has been um, integrated into the Cancer Center. So we're very excited about that opportunity to have the Coop Institute within the Cancer Center um, and to uh, be carrying on uh, Dr. Coop's legacy. uh, he, as, as most of you probably know, uh, Dr. Coop is one of the most effective Surgeon Generals today. He's known for his honesty and his courage in addressing difficult health issues including um, HIV before anybody in public had um, begun addressing it and uh, tobacco. And uh, he was addressing tobacco at a time when the industry Uh, We're still denying that nicotine was addictive and also denying that there were health consequences to smoking. So it took a lot of courage as the Surgeon General at that time to raise those issues in public. And uh, Dr. Koop had to be very clever to get around uh, the Reagan and later the Clinton administrations and some of the things that he decided to do in the name of the public good. Um, The Koop Lectureship is dedicated to bringing scientists that have Um, done uh, similar things in their fields. And the person that we have today, John Pierce, um, is a giant in the field of tobacco control. John is a a distinguished professor at the University of California at San Diego and is at the Moore's Cancer Center where he was the head of population sciences for a number of years, I think from 1992 onward. Before that, he was at Stanford University, where he got a uh, master's in psychology and a PhD in communications research. He's done uh, amazing work in tobacco control, work that has uh, changed policy, um, has uh, greatly improved our ability to um, address things like smoke-free homes. He's gotten a number of distinguished awards. He lists in, in, in his honors. One of the awards is the Caner Lectureship. So he was here, uh, I think about 10 years ago, doing the Caner Lectureship. And it was after that lectureship that he gave me the opportunity to um, start studying smoking in movies by giving me three questions on the California Tobacco Survey, which was the f- first set of questions that ever linked smoking in movies with kids smoking. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, He's not only mentored me, but he's mentored a number of other people, uh, too numerous to count at University of California, San Diego, I was there at his retirement, and I asked to raise your hand if you've been mentored by John Pearson, three-quarters of the room raised their hand. Um, Jen Emond, who's uh, just come on as faculty in data sciences, knows about that mentorship because she trained at the University of California, San Diego, and we have great uh, hopes for Jen at this institution. so uh, you know, in addition to all the honors, he's got two numerous to count s- studies, many of which were published in JAMA and other major medical journals. So without further ado, um, we're going to introduce Dr. Pierce. He's going to talk to us about uh, um, progress uh, on C. Everett Koop's 1982 Call for a Smoke Free Society. Um, and uh, just like Dr. Coop, I think you'll find that uh, Dr. Pierce is not afraid of throwing bombs.
1: <laughs> <coughs> Thank you, Jim, um, Mrs. Koop, and uh, uh, it's it's an honor to be here uh, uh, to give this first Seaver Koop uh, Institute lecture. Um, I went to, uh, I was a professor at the School of Public Health in Sydney when they decided I think it was the Rockefeller Institute, decided that uh, Australia didn't need a school of public health, uh, which was unfortunate uh, in some ways. But it led to me coming to the US. And uh, in 87, I arrived uh, to do the Surgeon General's reports with uh, Uh, I'd actually never seen anyone who was so proficient at uh, putting a point across uh, at um, tweaking those in power. He was very good at that, too. Uh, it, he was very effective. And the the first thing that uh, he was the Surgeon General from 1981, I think, to 88. I think it was at the start of 89 that, uh, that he, he finished. And uh, so I was involved in only the last couple of years of, of what he did. But uh, uh, he called for a smoke-free society when People weren't even talking about it. Um, 1981, and I'll, I'll cover this in a little bit, was the uh, the first evidence that secondhand smoke was harmful. Uh, and so he's calling for a smoke-free society in 82. Uh, it took uh, at least the US by shock. And if it took the US by shock, I, from, I was from Australia. 83, uh, we, we started the first. Uh, Tobacco control program, but we were only able to do that because we we're able to blackmail the minister who had his hand caught in the cookie jar trying to rezone his mother's house, <laughs> uh, and, and so we we're able to get a, a program going. And, and it, it, there was there was no interest in tobacco control. Uh, I arrived in '87. Why did I go to CDC? Uh, they, they showed me a room, and there were these big. Mag tapes. Those of you who are old enough to know what mag tapes are, they are all around the top of the room. I said, well, "What are they?" And they're all dusty, and they said, "Well, they're the National Health Interview Surveys." I said, "No one's even analysed them. No, no, they're just sitting up there." So that was enough for me. <laughs> and so, uh, so we we actually had a lot of fun doing a uh, a couple of uh, Surgeon General's reports that were uh, we did three in a row there that that had some impact. But anyway, so let's. Uh, Let's see what progress we've made uh, since then. It's quite a long time since '82 now, uh, so uh, let's see. That's the So, 50 years after the first Surgeon General's report, 42 million U.S. adult smokers. In 1987, there were 44 million. It's not that different. Okay, the population has grown. Everyone tells me yes, but I said but. Still 42 million smokers. Uh, tobacco causes more deaths now than it did then, but only that's because we've found out more diseases that people die from. Uh, so 1,300 a day. Uh, that, uh, so, it, with a huge cost to it. If we look at the deaths, lung cancer is still the main one. Uh, coronary heart disease, coronary artery disease uh, is, is a close second. Uh, and there's other diseases as well, like chronic obstructive uh, uh, pulmonary disease, uh, accounting for a lot of it. And if we look at the trends in prevalence, uh, it's all too slow a decline. Uh, and so the question is, why and what can be done? I mean, uh, the, uh, there's been a consensus in what we should do. and. Uh, and so, let's look at progress and then start saying, well, well, what else can be done? There's three key behaviors relating to health consequences of smoking. There's, first of all, initiation. Uh, there's successful cessation. And then there's a the level of consumption. And so, they're, they're the three things we, we need to look at. And if we look at, this is the first survey on smoking in the US, uh, a current population survey, in 1956. So just a few years after the, uh, the first papers have been published, uh, the first after, just a couple of years after the first cohort studies have been published. Um, and what you can see, first of all, is this is men, and 70% of them are smoking. Uh, and if you're looking at the age of initiation, it's all happening between basically 13 and 24. Uh, and that hasn't changed. Initiation, There's a window of initiation. Uh, if you get through to age 24 and you haven't started, the probability is high that you won't. Uh, and so that would seem easy. If you think back to 1964, uh, um, 1964, 45% of physicians were smoking. 45% of medical students were smoking, which was considerably lower than the 70% in 1950. Uh, but, but by 1980, it was only about 2% of medical students smoking. Uh, and that led—that was the genesis of the major decline in smoking. It wasn't cessation uh, by physicians. It was a, a, the, the lack of initiation. And it quickly changed prevalence. Uh, And so initiation is one of the critical uh, things that we should be looking at. This multicolored version, courtesy of the FDA, uh, is a paper that we've got currently uh, under consideration. Uh, This was a a presentation at the uh, SRNT. uh, And what you can see here is uh, they uh, the red line is, is current smokers. You can see it's basically dip, starting to dip off at, at uh, age 22. Uh, this is experimentation. That's also dipping off at 22. This is a, a measure we came up with on susceptibility, people who, who potentially could start smoking. And you can see that this is a, a few years ahead of the... The experimentation curve and you can identify it, it's 35% at age 12. So the influences are way ahead of when people first experiment. Uh, And so uh, if we're trying to stop it, you've got to stop where the influences are. So that's something we'll come to in a little bit too. We've had a lot of success in the reduction of, uh, uh, of smoking. This is people who became smokers, smoked at least 100 cigarettes. So you can see in the 1920 to 29, 70% uh, of uh, of the birth cohorts. Uh, but by uh, by 1970 to 79, people born in that 10-year birth cohort, it's uh, it's basically half that level. It's lower in California than in the rest of the U.S. And I'm putting California up because I'm going to talk a little bit about it. Uh, I know everyone gets sick of hearing about California here, but there's some some reasons uh, why the the California experience is is uh, salutary. Uh, in terms of cessation, this is a New England Journal article, 2013. Uh, basically, uh, the health consequences of smoking are a loss of 10 years of uh, life expectancy uh, for for the general population. Uh, and in this paper, if you if a smoker quits before the age of 35 years, there's minimal uh, loss. Uh, there's minimal health consequences uh, to that. If they quit by age 50, then uh, about 40% of health consequences are. Uh, uh, are it, it only has about 40% of health consequences. Less than half of the health consequences of the continuing smoker, and. By age 65, even then, it, you're still only you're reducing the health consequences by a third. So there's tremendous benefit, especially for getting people to quit at a young age, uh, but also targeting uh, age 50 and even age 65 in terms of likely health consequences. But just to show you where quitting is here, if we, we look at the, uh, the different slopes, 18 to 29. I actually changed the question here, and there's a bit of a change. And you can see it's it's a slope, 20 to 30. So we're saying uh, quit successfully here. I'm talking about which is you've got to be quit for at least a year, uh, just because it's just time. Uh, once uh, over a year, it's about a five percent uh, relapse rate. Uh, at six months, it's about 40% relapse rate. At three months, it's, it's over 50% relapse rate. And so there's a there's a curve. But So over a year, and you can see that, you know, we have the change in the question, but it's still less than 30% there with, with a bit of change. We're looking at 30 to 49. We're going along quite well, about 1% a year. But this is about 1992. It's about the introduction of... Nicotine, nicotine patches, and things of that sort. At the time, it went flat. So, so very little change uh, since the early 90s. The same for 40 to 59. We had a nice slope going along there, and this is dead flat. Uh, the, those who had retired, uh, that that's kept on increasing over time. Okay. So, in terms of that. So, what two of the big problems of this group right here? Uh, and so the question is, uh, of the approaches we got, uh, uh, what else can we do? Now, uh, so this happened just before Sierra Koop came up and asked for the Smoke-Free Society. This is the, uh, the first uh, Hiriyama paper uh, showing you know, as everyone knows, Asian women have tended not to smoke, but they were dying from lung cancer if they lived with husbands who smoked. And so it was very clear evidence. Uh, and not only that, uh, the American Cancer Society also came up with a paper uh, showing, the, showing the connection. And ever since then, we've had a decline in uh, the amount of cigarettes per day smoked by smokers across all age groups. Prior to that, in the 1989 Surgeon General's report, which is the 25 years uh, update that we did, we were unable to show any change in consumption of cigarettes by smokers since the 1960s. So they'd, they'd been, as you can see here, there's, a, there's even a slight increase going on here. Uh, but uh, uh, then from there on in, and this is a dead straight line, uh, and you can see the slopes here. Six, I've left the 65 years off because it, the slope is a little bit lower for that group. But you know, it's about 0.26 per year uh, for now uh, over 30 years. Okay, 36 years of this now. So a major decline in in smoking, and really starting with the evidence on secondhand smoke. Okay. So what works? We have a consensus of what works. We have all sorts of reports. Uh, We've got the CDC reports. We've got the best practices. We've got the MPOW from the WHO. We've got the Community Preventive Task Force. uh, We've got the National Cancer Institute. Uh, They're all saying the same thing. There's five basic uh, things that matter to, to change. We should have sustained funding of comprehensive programs, including mass media. Well, we ran the first one of that, so of course I'm going to agree with it. (laughs) Um, Excise tax increases,
0: 100%
1: smoke-free policies, comprehensive marketing restrictions, and access to effective cessation services. Okay, so how are we doing on each of these five things? I want to compare what happened before 2000 with what's happened since in terms of what we're doing. So first of all, the sustained comprehensive programs. We've got we have the early 80s program from the um, from Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, we have the California campaign from the uh, started in 1988. Um, we published that in JAMA in 98. We have the Florida campaign showing effectiveness in kids. So we've got we got the first three three of the first uh, set of campaigns. Uh, Massachusetts was another one. New York's one since then. Uh, but having uh, Showing effectiveness, and so, so what's happened? Uh, well, first of all, let's look at the California one. Uh, what you need this is this is actually per capita consumption, not not smokers' consumption, it's per capita, and you can see here 1967, which was California put in a big tax, uh, and also the Fairness Doctrine campaign. Uh, Perry Mason uh, guy got up, but Other people remember the Yul Brynner ad later on, but uh, uh, Tillman, I think it was Tillman, it was the prosecutor who got up and said, you know, when you see this ad, I'll be dead uh, because of smoking and uh, whatever you do, don't smoke. And so Yul Brynner made a separate ad like that in the early 80s, okay? I think uh, your husband had quite a bit to do with that. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, and you, so you can see that California was smoking a lot more, then it dropped at that time period. Uh, of course, Perry Mason is a Hollywood uh, uh, phenomenon, and so the, the effect was much bigger in California than it was in the rest of the country. And then you have uh, the, here's the ban on to broadcast advertising starting here, uh, and then you start you, you the first evidence of secondhand smoke, and you can see the decline in, in per capita consumption. It's actually increasing more in California than it is in, especially after this is the period of the California Tobacco Control Program. So you get a sudden drop off as well. Okay. So if we look at what was the effect of that, this is lung cancer. So now we're talking the crossover being in basically 1986-87, so we're talking almost 20 years different from the crossover in consumption, uh, and you can see the ever increasing uh, rate of decline between. This is the lung cancer rates uh, per 100,000. And so, if we just look at that gap a little bit, uh, uh, it, it, you know, how how is the gap growing? Well, it's a straight line. Uh, there are all the data points on it and uh, it's increasing each year. It's now, it's over 25% difference in lung cancer and increasing. So you know, what's California doing that's different to the others, so, or maybe nothing. So okay, on sustained funding of tobacco control programs, uh, in the 90s, there are only three states with an average expenditure greater than a dollar per capita through the decade. Massachusetts had about $7.20 through the decade. Uh, California had $3, and Arizona had just an over $2. Uh, the, this became the CDC uh, recommended levels that was uh, between Massachusetts and California. Uh, they decided it was the level that we should be funding it at. So we look at 2000 to 2012, 44 states, almost all of them. Spending more than a dollar per capita. So this is taking not just the state level, but it's also taking Rob Wood Johnson, CDC, and other into account. 22 states with an average of greater than $3 per capita. That's the, that's the level California's been at. Actually, it's higher than California's been at since then. California is around $2 uh, now. So only seven states with an average of less than $1. Connecticut, South Carolina, Alabama, Missouri, Texas, Tennessee, and Michigan. Uh, So major success here in terms of uh, people responding with what has been said to be, this is a key uh, thing you need to do is increase the expenditure on on tobacco control programs. Um, Just to look at what happened in California with the program, the real effect was on adolescents. And uh, where uh, if you look at age 15 to 17, this is men, but it was the same for women. Uh, the birth cohort in 1976, about 50% of them started smoking. And by the birth cohort 1988 to 1990, it was only 10%. So 90% were never smokers by 15 to 17. A major impact on adolescent smoking. And, and the initiation rate uh, coming through. So the California effect was really about initiation. Right, then it wasn't much about in other things. Okay. So what about excise tax increases? You've got, most people have seen this curve. You know, uh, you send up the price, down go the sales. We all know about that because uh, whenever there's a sale on, we go and buy clothes, right? Um, it's, uh, uh, so price is is critical uh, to the whole market. So uh, between '90 90 and '99, uh, there's six states. There's that California again uh, in there that increased their excise tax by more than 50 cents. Okay, so so uh, uh, 12 states with zero change uh, in their excise taxes. Again, you can see. Uh, the expected group, Kentucky, uh, Mississippi, South Carolina, the tobacco-growing states as well as a few others in there. Between 1999, I'm cutting at 99 because we're going to talk the Master Settlement Agreement in a minute, which which, uh, gave money to the states, and so it it became easier to do. So you've got nine states now that have increased their tax by more than $2. Uh, You know, Vermont's in there. Uh, New Hampshire is not, New York, California is not in there. Right? 27 states increased the excise tax by a dollar. I mean, this is a a fair amount of response to what people have been saying we need to do. Only 14 states increased by less than 50 cents, and three states with zero. And there's California. Uh, So even though the... Uh, We're seeing a continued uh, increase in the um, uh, difference in lung cancer. Uh, California has not had the increase in in the areas of tobacco control since then. But remember, there's 16 to 20 year lag time on on these issues. So what we're expecting is California to be tagged back in the next few years, to start seeing a decrease in that slope. I'll that go on. So, other places in the world talk about an endgame plan for cigarette smoking, and Australia has one of these. Uh, and they've got an election coming up, but uh, depending on what happens in that, they've proposed a 12.5% increase in the cigarette tax each year from t- 2017 through 2020. And that means a pack of cigarettes is 45 bucks in 2020. And so when, compared to what the highest price here was just over $12 uh, in New York. And even there, most people are not paying it. The average price paid is about $7 or something like that. Uh, the price of cigarettes in other places is way, way higher than here. And amazingly, the cigarette smoking rate is still higher than here too. Uh, in terms of both of them. So, price is not everything. All right, what about smoke free policies? So, 100% smoke free policies, you know, that's the first part of a smoke free society. So, uh, and it's coming from the evidence that secondhand smoke is dangerous. And so, in 1999, we had four states with greater than 75% of indoor workers saying they had a smoke free workplace. That is, Someone has smoked in their, in their workplace in the last two weeks was, was the question we asked, and, and so, so you got four, four states there by 1999. 17 states with, with two thirds of indoor workers say reporting a smoke-free workplace. So less than two thirds. By 2011, there were 15 states with greater than 85 percent. Right, it, it was. It's really been a major success story here. There's only six states with less than 75. So remember, up the top, we had four states with greater than 75. Now, we've only got six states with less than that. Uh, And so so what are we actually talking about? You're looking at here, actually, New Hampshire and Vermont are very low. They're in the less than 3% level, right? Um, California's not there. It's 5% uh, here. Uh, of course, they're always the casinos. Uh, you can always go to Nevada to see what it used to be like. Um, but uh, look at these rates. You know, they're they're very low across the whole country. Uh, you know, uh, there's only one state more than 12%. There's only two states more than 7%. This is a huge, huge change uh, a- across the country in really... A- fairly short amount of time. Now what about comprehensive marketing restrictions? So uh, as part of the, the, the Master Settlement Agreement, that's this, the states sued the, uh, the tobacco industry, uh, what was called the Medicaid lawsuits, for, for payment of health uh, consequences, and part of that was also the Joe Camel campaign and the and the fact that and Marlborough miles, and so the the marketing targeting, and you know we had at that stage we had sixty percent of the kids under under age fifteen who reported having a favorite cigarette ad, which was really something very different to what it is today. But remember they they said uh, they would not take any action directly or indirectly to target youth within any state. In the advertising, promotion, or marketing of tobacco products, uh, and the the attorney, state attorneys general, uh, are, are on top of this, and and so uh, the the companies are liable if that's the case. This had a big impact uh, almost right away. Uh, it's it's amazing how quick the impact can be on initiation, because. People who are, getting, who are initiating smoking, they're not addicted. And so you can turn that around rather quickly. Uh, when you're working with people who have been uh, addicted for 20 to 30 years, it's a much slower process uh, over time. But, but you can see here a major decline uh, all the way down to, uh, to 2015. So it's continuing to decline uh, in uh, the 12th grade, 8th, 10th grade, and 8th grade. So we get, it, it looks like. We might be wiping out cigarette smoking uh, that uh, we wish. Industries turn things around. Um, you know, if you look at blue electronic cigarettes advertised on television, uh, so you can see the blue tip, but aside from that, it looks exactly like cigarette smoking. Uh, so we've got advertising now that hasn't been allowed for years which is now allowed again. And what are we seeing in terms of uh, this is uh, the new national survey, PATH survey from the, that the FDA runs. And uh, this was presented at SRMT. Uh, and so you can see at 12 to 13, you've got some 41% have got aided recall of ads. Uh, this is They took a census of the ads. Jim was heavily involved in all this. Uh, census of the ads that were that were used in 2013, and every person got every person under the age of 24 got 20 different ads. Have you seen this? Okay, and do you like it? And things like that. And so, so we've got. Uh, remember, they're not allowed to target kids, right? Uh, so 41, 49, 50. So it's it's there in 12 to 13 year olds uh, at levels that we haven't seen. Since uh, the 1990s, so uh, and and that's why there's so much concern about these cigarettes uh, at the moment. Or one of the reasons, I should say. The uh, a friend of uh, a great tobacco control researcher who died last year, uh, Nigel Gray, said, "Well, uh, you can tell you're doing a good job." because look how much it's costing them to keep up with you, uh, to maintain. So, uh, they're outspending prevention efforts by 18 to 1. Uh, In the mid-90s, they're outspending us by 10 to 1. So, they're just spending more money. But, you know, that's not our goal. Our goal is not to have them spend more money. Uh, Our goal is to reduce smoking. Uh, Not not for them to spend more money to get the same effect. Uh, But that's sort of what's been happening. All right, so what about access to effective cessation services? Remember, we talked about the between 30 and 64, it's been pretty flat. Uh, And so the question is, uh, what what can we do about it? Well, this is a a study of uh, a longitudinal study of uh, the uh, what works to get people over one year, looking at who was quit for at least 30 days. Uh, this is the current population survey, which is the labour force survey. Uh, and I want to focus down here on using a farmer aid in quit attempt. Okay, and so uh, for those who did. The success rate was 40% of, the, of others for those who didn't. So it's not a great success rate uh, that we've been having with that. Now, there's uh, to remind people, there's seven first-line medications. Five are nicotine-related. And, and of course, there is the issue of how can you use nicotine to cure, to cure a nicotine addiction, uh, which is somewhat problematic. but. Uh, uh, this counselling and medications are effective as well. But when we look at uh, this was uh, another current population survey, longitudinal survey two, uh, ten years ago, we, we look at it and you can see that uh, well, there is an effect for 35 to 49 year olds if they're using it compared to those who don't, but. It It's almost reversed for the younger people, and the majority of those who are quitting are younger people uh, making quit attempts. And so the question becomes one of, you know, is the marketing keeping them going, or or what's keeping them going? But but do they actually need cessation services? Uh, Are the cessation services helping? Uh, Again, uh, for all of those who who used a cessation service, and that was a lot of the young people as well, the success rate was less than those who didn't. Uh, If we look at cessation services over time, did we increase it as as, as it was called for by all the studies, by all the reports? Yes, we did. Major increase in, in the number of smokers who were using cessation services. Quit attempts, they changed a little bit over that time period. Success, nothing at all. So the whole issue of using cessation services has been uh, problematic, at, at, at least at the population level, in terms of, of what's, when, what's happening. But you know, we have had change. And if we're looking at it, uh, smoke-free home status People who do something about uh, their own home, where smokers who don't smoke at home is what we're talking about, that increases the probability of success 60% over time. Uh, If there's a smoker in the house, uh, then that makes it worse, but if if you don't have another smoker in the house, it's better. So both having a smoke-free home and living without a smoker are two major predictors of outcome. Notice that those who are less than 10 cigarettes a day don't go very well, uh, but those who are about 10 to 20, that's where there's, there's some success. So it looks like there's people who are cutting down to less than 10 instead of quitting, uh, and it's going on. But, but so we have these these two uh, issues, and well, you can't do much about who you're married to, I suppose you can, but. Uh, uh, it's not. Uh, it's not likely. Uh, the smoke-free home status is is really important. So, so what's happened with that? Rapid increase over time is what we see. Um, California's been out in front. Well, I should say second now. Uh, uh, Hawaii is way down the bottom, by the way. Um, but Utah is still up there uh, in terms of uh, having uh, smokers with smoke-free homes. Vermont has jumped in the last uh, uh, since 2007. Uh, New Hampshire is, is 34th, as you can see. So, so the issue with Vermont now there is, uh, uh, if you're looking at that, there it's over 50% of smokers who have smoke-free homes, but New Hampshire is around 40%. So there's now a significant difference between these two, in terms of uh, smokers with smoke-free homes, even though the states are right next to each other. New York is a laggard in this. Uh, just as California was a complete laggard in terms of price changes, New York's a laggard in terms of having smokers with smoke-free homes. And West Virginia brings up the tail end, uh, where you can see it's around 26 27%. But it's still a huge increase over the last 20 years here. That, that, uh, so we're seeing this, as, this is a change in the population that's been happening. Uh, that uh, uh, is what a smoke free society, what a lot of people think a smoke free society is about. That is, non smokers don't have to put up with smoking at work uh, or at home. Uh, now, so just to look at it across the whole thing, if we have a, we have a look at a long, two longitudinal samples, we're talking about one in 2002, 2003. Uh, this is the big national surveys, 2010 and 2011. Uh, approximately the same sample size. Uh, of smokers uh, who were followed over that time period initially it was 28% had smoke free homes then it jumped to 45% so we're, we're seeing this big increase not quite a doubling quit attempts well those who got a smoke free home it's uh, pretty much the same no change in quit attempts uh, for those who didn't have a smoke free home no change in quit attempts uh, less than, than the, those who had a smoke-free home, okay? So there's a quit attempt effect, and there's also a success effect. Well, this is only 30 days, because it's only a follow-up for a year, so we wanted to make sure we had uh, as many people in there as we could. But if you're looking at it, so we're talking a doubling here uh, in the early time period, and and actually no real difference over time. So the difference, in smoking cessation we're getting is coming from the increase in smoke-free homes. If you have a smoke-free home, you're, you're not more likely to be successful in quitting than you were uh, 10 years ago, uh, but you still double the rate of those who don't have it. So the change is coming from people doing a behavioural intervention. They're actually doing something to modify their own smoking behaviour because if you don't have a smoke-free home, You can't have that first cigarette before you have a shower. You can't have that cigarette after a meal. Uh, Some of the cigarettes that people uh, value most, they have to change how they do it. and So they have to manipulate their own behavior. So they've they've actually got to do something rather than just take a pill. Now, the Royal College of Physicians came out recently. I'm sure you all heard uh, the English have gone with uh, tobacco harm reduction. It concludes that, for all the potential risks involved, harm reduction has a huge potential to prevent death and disability from tobacco use and to hasten our progress to a to- tobacco-free society. Don't we wish, OK? Uh, the report's based on no evidence. Uh, you've got two randomized trials, neither of them was Uh, was significant but they put them together and they said yeah together we have meta-analysis of two trials makes it a significant effect so why are they doing that Uh, because uh, the problem we have here is uh, there's an issue of the assumption is that smokers will have no trouble in converting to smokeless tobacco or or some sort of smoke such as an e-cigarette. Smokeless tobacco was their first wish, nicotine replacement was their second, but that's gone now and now they're coming with these cigarettes. The the problem is how many young people are going to start because of the advertising Uh, and will they undermine the effect there? So the question is, what, what do we know about what's happened? These products have been on the market now for nine years. So we're in a pretty good place now to see what's going on. Uh, So past year quit attempts, uh, looking at that same survey, 2010, 2011. um, So uh, overall, as we pointed out before, you've got about 43% trying to quit. Uh, Of those, 12% have ever used an e-cigarette, and 5%, a little less than half, uh, said they used it to quit, uh, and so given this was 2010, 2011, this is the start of the e-cigarette rise, uh, the marketing, and so so that 5% is uh, probably in the last year, but we can't prove that. Uh, if you look at the uh, the quitting, you can see that, as I said before, you've got uh, um, the, the quit attempts are higher the younger age groups than they are for the older age groups. Uh, and you know, those using for quitting is approximately the same across age. Uh, so the question is what happened? If you're looking at the ever used to quit status, those who used an e-cigarette to quit were less successful than than those who didn't. Uh, In actual fact, uh, it's marginally worse off than using a pharmaceutical aid. Uh, Now, uh, the population data has been attacked before because uh, what you're doing here is, this is anybody who used an aid, whether they, uh, and and the people who use an aid are those who believe they can't do it by themselves. Therefore, they're going to be less successful. uh, yes, that's true. But uh, e-cigarettes being promoted out there—that uh, uh, shouldn't be worse off than than where the pharmaceutical aid is. Uh, so, and and the question is, it, it seems to be that it is. Now, the so this is the actual path study again, the big national longitudinal that's going out. This is 2013, 2014, and you can see that that the uh, any tobacco here, cigarettes make up the most of it, cigars. Look at e-cigarettes. So, in the, so now at 2013, 2014, seven years after e-cigarettes have been on the market, we've got 5.5% of people have ever used one and it's about 2% who have used it every day. So we're just not seeing people changing to it. Uh, they're using it sporadically, but they're not... The hope was... Uh, in the Royal College of Physicians report, is these people wouldn't smoke cigarettes anymore. That that all turn around and be smoking e-cigarettes. Well, that's not happening. And Jim can tell you a bit more about why that's not happening. He's been over the vape shops to see how difficult it is to do it uh, lately. So,
0: yeah. Are these percentages percentages of the entire population?
1: Yep. We're talking about the, the we're talking about the PATH study. So so th- this is this is anybody in 2014 who'd ever tried it. Five percent. Okay, everyone's talking about 60 percent, but the numbers come out of nowhere. Uh, you look at the PATH study, and the PATH study is 46,000 people. Uh, it's it's a a, a, a doorknob survey. Uh, they, they take they take uh, blood samples uh, and. Uh, uh, and have uh, validation of, of smoking behaviour with cotinines. Uh It's a hugely expensive study, like 200 million dollars for the first uh, first two surveys uh, of some sort of like that. It's paid by a user fee to the FDA, uh, and uh, they're the numbers we're seeing. Uh, you know, that's the, the, long, the first longitudinal is coming in uh, now. I mean, this is adults. First longitudinal is coming in and we're seeing explosions in the adolescent uh, user rates, but we're not seeing explosions in the adults. Am I allowed to say that? I probably wasn't. Anyway. Uh, but the. Uh, no one will tell. It, it, it's under, these surveys are under wraps uh, for uh, the restricted use file for the baseline survey is now available for anyone who wants to use it. Uh, the first follow-up survey will become available uh, sometime like this time next year.
0: We have to sign secret agreements that we'll give up our firstborn child if we reveal data before the FDA allow us
1: to. Jim signed it without a problem. You know, He doesn't like his firstborn child, obviously. <laughs> so let's just uh, look at where we're at. Uh, I, I mean, I had another slide in there. I took it out. Uh, because I thought we we're getting a bit too complex. It was: Is there any evidence that those who use it are reducing the number of cigarettes they're smoking a day? Using uh, e-cigarettes. Using e-cigarettes. We're using e-cigarettes. But uh, as I just pointed out, the use rate is so low, uh, with, with only two percent using it on a regular basis. It, it's not enough to, to say that. But. If you look at it, if you say, oh, those who are smoking more than 15 cigarettes a day, uh, you've got a regression to the mean effect over a year where, uh, where most people are reducing their cigarettes and those who are less than 15 cigarettes a day, the regression to the mean increases their cigarettes. There's no evidence that e-cigarettes use is associated with, uh, with less cigarette smoking than, than that. So it's suggesting that people were trying it and hardly any were using it on any regular basis. And they're only using it when they didn't. Uh, they're using it particularly in workplace settings at the front end. And there's, there's been a lot of action now to stop uh, use in workplaces. And so uh, that's probably going to change. So we didn't put that slide up because uh, it's probably too early to know that. but But the evidence is not suggesting that people who are using them are using them to reduce their smoking which is what the whole uh, assumption of the, the Royal College of Physicians report is. So, so what have we got on conducting comprehensive program, programs? Major increases in states. Uh, so if Surgeon General Coop was here, he would say, big success. People were doing what we asked them to do. Uh, I mean, a major increase. Uh, the, the programs we said were the most fantastic programs associated with the big effect. Everyone's spending that much money now. Well, most people are. we've still the tobacco growing states. Uh, regular increases in excise tax. We've bumped it up. We're not crazy like the Australians. We haven't got it up to 40 bucks yet. They haven't either, actually, but they're, they're up to 15 to 20. Uh, in England, the same way. I mean. The cheapest place for cigarettes in the world is here, you know. uh, so, so but we're increasing it. and so uh, you know uh, no one would have thought that was going to happen, but it has happened. Restrictions on tobacco marketing, well, we've had we had some major restrictions and and it had a big impact on kids smoking. but you know unless we're holding the line on this, they're coming back at us. And so, uh, It's uh, it's an area of concern. Uh, their area of concern that everyone has, and again, Jim's got a nice analysis that he's presenting next week. I don't want to steal his thunder, but I will. (laughs) Uh, There's seven studies now which show that people who start with e cigarettes move over and start smoking cigarettes. So it's a starter product for cigarettes, uh, which is what what one of the big concerns has been. what about protecting non-smokers from uh, second-hand smoke? Uh, historic blows. I mean, you couldn't. Uh, in 1982, Dr. Koop could not have imagined the effect this would have had. For those who were around 82, we would have had cigarette ashtrays on the tables here, okay? In this in this room, uh, things have changed so dramatically since then. Uh, it's so so. We had in California, in our survey, 2008 was the last one we did, uh, we had over 50% of non-smokers who never saw a smoker in their life. You know, or, well, I shouldn't go that far. Didn't experience a smoker. Even when they're outside, they didn't have them. And, and so that's, that's so different to what it was. Uh, it, it's hard to imagine. But helping smokers make quit attempts more successful That has not been a success story. And that's been our problem. And we don't really have a solution to it. And the solution that's being promoted does not seem to work. But it's not being questioned either. Where we are is we've got a prevalence rate that's coming down, but way, way too slow. Uh, We'll still have smoking in 2050 uh, at the current rates. Thank you. We
0: have time for a few questions and um, since I'm one of the sponsors, I get to ask the first question. Uh, So, you know, anybody that kind of counsels patients about smoking cessation will refer to randomized trials where nicotine replacement therapy when given to smokers who are trying to quit uh, improves the ability for, for, for people to quit, doubles the success rate. And there's over 100 randomized trials in that area. So how do you square the population data that you just presented that that people in the population who try quitting are less likely? I know you, you brought up the idea that they're 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 going after the nicotine replacement because it's they're more addicted. It's harder for them to quit in the first place. But is it, is there a flaw with the randomized trials? Do you think?
1: How do you rig a randomized trial? It can be. I, I my first degree was epidemiology, which uh, and I, I was a randomized trialist. And uh, so uh, the people who come into the randomized trials run by the pharmaceutical companies are people who want to use a nicotine replacement to quit. They really want to use it. And so if you're running a randomized trial, one of the first things is, is a double blind, right? So the people who are in the control group know they're getting the sugar pill instead of nicotine. Now, who are these people? They're nicotine addicts. If they can't tell the difference, they're not an addict. Uh, so, they know. So, the next question is, if you're running a trial, how do you keep the control group in the study? Right? Because the obvious thing will happen is, I'm, not getting, I'm getting a sugar pill. I don't want a sugar pill. I don't need to put on weight. Uh, so, uh, let me go somewhere else and buy it down the road, right? Or something like that. The way they do that is they promise them six months of drug at the end of the study. So the control group gets promised that, you know, hang on in the study, come and do your measures and everything like that and then we'll give you the drug. So what do they do? They sit back and wait. So what you get is a a control group that's not trying to quit. They're waiting for the end of the study to get their drug. And so uh, the, the, most cl- the classic example, of this was one of the JAMA studies where they, they actually did, uh, for varenicline, they, they actually did it uh, in, in Europe. They did 12 weeks of varenicline, and then they randomized them to a sugar pill versus varenicline. Now, anyone who's been on varenicline knows that you sure as hell know when you're on it, especially if you've been on it, then they take you off it. You've got the suicidal ideation, you've got the, uh, the stomach problems, you've got, you know, uh, so they take you off it. And so what happened is you had a curve coming down and, and the survival curve keeps going in the, in the intervention group. In the control group, the control group it drops to zero. Just like that. And uh, this was published in general. So I, I, I wrote to them and said, what's going on? Clearly, they're not interested in, they're going to wait they, they've been promised they're going to get the drug in at the end of the study, and that's what it was. So you so. don't think
0: it's a drug effect when they go off the of verenically, It's uh, they know what's going on, and they wait. They relapse. Yeah, they relapse and they just wait a bit. What do you think, Mary? Well, I was going to ask a different question. <laughs> <laughs> not going to get into the drug study topic. Um, so I think there's some evidence that. Um, People who are starting to smoke now and who are continuing to smoke come from disadvantaged groups and groups with um, mental health conditions or other addictions. And I was wondering about your thoughts about what are some public health strategies that might be effective with those populations who now are probably the majority of smokers these
1: days? Very popular statement, but uh, not a lot of truth to it. Uh, the uh, I don't know about your university, but we're seeing smoking around our university again. Uh, the uh, not as much, and it's more social smoking. But uh, the uh, th- whether they whether they're mentally uh, c- certainly those who are depressed that's got about a 20% increase in the likelihood of initiating smoking. Uh, those who have externalizing problems or something like that uh, using the gain score, it's about a 40% increase. Sensation seekers, 50, 55% increase in, in, in likely usage of it. And if you look at that also, you find most of these people are not working in indoor settings, okay? So all these smoke-free laws only apply if you work indoors. If you're a construction worker, if you're a landscape gardener, none of this applies, uh, and so so they don't have the variables that we we're looking at in terms of being protective from them starting. Uh, but they're not all mental uh, health uh, problem cases, uh, although you know there 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 is the issue, and it's a very real issue of the biological uh, coping mechanism that nicotine. Can have, uh, and it's hard. It seems to be harder for people to quit. Uh, you've got to sort that out. With are we really even promoting it very heavily that they should, uh, if if they have a mental condition of, of some sort, or, or are we giving them a bit of a pass on it, uh, in in terms of where the stigma is, and, uh, you know, it, it's it's not easy to sort out, uh, but uh, it's certainly not. Uh, it, it's not an issue that the uh, lower socioeconomic status, well, that's not working in indoor settings, uh, that is as well, uh, the, uh, but it's not the Hispanics. Uh, in, if you're looking at it, the Hispanic men but you know, uh, uh, are higher, but they're occasional smokers. They smoke two or three days a week, uh, less than five, six cigarettes a day, lots of them. Uh, although there's some evidence that's changing. Uh, but the uh, so, you know, it I, I've heard this a lot. That's what's going on. But I don't think uh, that was the argument for bupropion at the front end. Uh, but as that having a twofold effect. But no one even wants to prescribe that anymore. No one, no one even talks about it, right? So it's it's sort of what's happening is the drugs are coming. And they, they last about five years, and then we sort of get rid of them and take on the next one that's coming on. And these cigarettes is the next one that everyone's pushing at the moment. And so I I don't I don't think the evidence is compelling.
0: What about um, just are there, what I'm interested in is public health strategies for um, disadvantaged populations. So mental health aside, you know it's clear that if you're if you have a lower education, if you're lower income you're just much more likely to smoke than if you're high education, high income. Are, is that being addressed in new public
1: health strategies? But um, well, what, you, what you're saying is we, we've had the typical health education campaign, right? By the better educated, for the better educated. Exactly.
0: <laughs> so, so what are we going to do different that's going to help? So
1: so what we published a paper back in, in the early 90s in, on the Australian campaign, and, and the mass media uh, effect wiped out the education effect. So you, got, you had the same, the same change. So if you're putting things in newspapers and you're putting things in, in, uh, uh, in Surgeon General's reports, uh, you're, not, you're not delivering the news in a way that the other people get it. Uh, and so, so maybe you're in the wrong area uh, and maybe we should be doing more of that. And, and there's, we've been running mass media marketing campaigns, the question is how effective they are. Uh, and you know, it's easy to run a campaign that's not very effective. It's hard to run an effective one. And, and without getting too far into that, I, I, I think we're not targeting very much. If we look at the African-Americans, we see uh, up to tw- up to under 18, we don't see much initiation at all. It's about 40% lower, but by the time they hit 24, they're 30% higher. So. So, you know, in that six-year period, after they leave school, there's this huge explosion in in uptake of smoking. And, and what's that? why is that happening? Uh, so, you know, it shouldn't have been happening. We, we should, we, everyone thinks that, you know, 12 to 17, we're sort of immunizing them against what will happen later. Maybe it'll go through to 21. But we have this explosion in that group. And it's, it's all seems, seems to be happening now in the Hispanics as well. So I, I think we're allowing ourselves a bit of a cop out by saying it's it's the dis- really disadvantaged groups out there, and not looking at who they're marketing at uh, and how they're doing it.
0: Yeah? I want to thank everybody for coming. There's going to be a reception. Um, where's the reception? Right out here. Right out here. Yep. With something to drink and something to eat. And you can have a casual conversation with Dr. (laughs) Peter. And everybody's welcome to come.